0: Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at at We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at probablyrealjp. That's P R O B A B L Y R E A L J P. The show is written and produced by me. Speaking to an interviewer about his battles with addiction and his eventual sobriety, Green Day's Billy Joe Armstrong observed how the reality-warping experience of being a father and living with tiny, sentient versions of himself would push him off an existential cliff if he were also still on drugs. And just before his death, the actor Heath Ledger said, Having a child changes every aspect of your life, for the better, of course. The sacrifices are large, but what you get in return is even bigger than the sacrifices you make. I feel, in a sense, ready to die, because you are living on in your child. Parenting is really hard. It's also a profoundly weird, out-of-body experience in a way that's hard to appreciate until or unless you do it. And over the last seven years of living as a parent, I've been surprised by how often I've revisited many of the ideas that I studied as a philosophy student in college. My friend Robin Wilkins is in the same boat. Like me, she's a parent and a teacher, and her academic background is in philosophy. She often comments on and writes about the subject, so I asked her to talk to me about some of the better parenting philosophies she's come across, as well as why there's so many awful ones, and how applying the critical lens a training in philosophy provides can help us make sense of the philosophy of parenting industrial complex. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: I would love to introduce myself. So we we got to be Twitter pals as so many people in the pandemic do in part because I've been writing a little bit about parenting, but not necessarily telling people how to do it, but I'm more interested in the way that parenting advice is marketed. And in some of the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of the popular um, forms of parenting advice that float around. So that's the kind of thing that I tend to write about. So I'm really glad you decided to have me on because I don't get to talk about this very much.
0: (laughs) Well, we have some stuff in common. We
1: do. Um, So philosophy is one of the main ones. My professional background is a little here, there, and everywhere. Um, I didn't find out about the ADD until later, but it'll make sense when you hear it. So I started out as a music major (laughs) and then switched to philosophy, as one does, uh, and also German, and then I taught for a little while, went to grad school for philosophy, uh, worked at the German consulate for a while had some kids moved to Texas for my husband's job had an existential crisis um, and now oh yeah and I taught music for a while and then there was a pandemic and I was sick all the time anyway because toddlers so you know furlough I'm on furlough at the moment which is a mixed bag but it's okay <laughs> well
0: it's better than being on 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 nothing uh... yeah.
1: Yeah, it Absolutely. really is. Uh well, I'm not getting I'm not getting paid. It's like
0: a step up from nothing. Yeah,
1: in my case it just means that I'm not like fired. I'm not getting paid, but I'm right. fortunate to be doing okay and having more time for weird hobbies and interesting conversations. But in any case, I uh am a huge fan of Alison Gopnik. Yeah. So I read her book, um The Gardener and the Carpenter, which came out in 2016. Eh, shortly after it was published, and I've had a little time to mull over it. Had you read her work before? I think I recommended it.
0: No, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of her, um, but I didn't really know what she was all about.
1: So I would like to ask first, what were your impressions as someone who's kind of new to this? Because I've got my ideas, but I want to know what you think.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, well, we're both parents as well. And yes. we have we have kids who are of, of similar age. Uh, and like we were talking before, and I, I you know, one of the things that's kind of occurred to me recently is the way that i'm processing a lot of my experience as a parent through the lens of like my philosophical training right um yeah and that a lot of those ideas that have been kind of dormant for a while um are (laughs) like re-emerging in you know the way that like it's just this weird existential fire that's happening all around you all the time and um and so yeah i i uh I'm also very annoyed by the kind of self-help wellness, yeah. here's how you raise a child, um, industrial complex. Yes. So I, I like I like the uh, I like when that is done in a way that applies sort of philosophical ideas, but in a way that is constructive insofar as it's not like telling you how to raise a kid, but sort of telling you how to not think about <laughs> the, the approach that you take to raising a right. kid I, you know what i mean yeah
1: i do so um so for anyone who, who isn't familiar with dr Gopnik's work she is a um, developmental psychologist and philosopher haha uh at uc berkeley and she has done a lot of Really interesting work about um, cognition and learning and perception and in infants and small children. So she looks at how they learn, how their brains develop, um, when they start to develop theory of mind, how they interpret purposeful actions versus random actions among adults around them, and things like that. It's super cool, um, and that's something that she mostly covers in one of her earlier books called *The Philosophical Baby*, which is not about like how to read nature to your child. It's really about like. <laughs> Like I said, it's about how children understand perception and the self and time. And the experiments in it are incredibly clever and very cute. So I highly recommend that book just for like adorable (laughs) science factor. Um, The Gardener and the Carpenter follows a central metaphor. And it is that raising a child is less like being a carpenter, where you get this block of wood that you shape to perfection with your will and careful action. And it's a lot more like gardening, where your main focus isn't to perfectly carefully shape this one plant. It's rather to create a happy, healthy environment where your plants can thrive. And you're kind of expecting a certain number of surprises. You recognize that there's a lot that's out of their control. You recognize that development is this sort of biological process that is mostly going to happen unless it's hindered. So you're just, you know, given the sunshine and the soil and the water metaphorically speaking, and sometimes literally. And she argues that this is a more sort of philosophically, psychologically appropriate way of looking at raising a child and that it can also remove a lot of the stress that middle-class and upperly mobile parents especially tend to put on themselves to you know, make sure that the child's stroller is facing the correct way and they have the right bottle and the right cup and they make the right decisions about sleep routines. One of the things that she argues is that a lot of those sort of minutiae of everyday physical terror taking don't actually make much of a difference in families who have adequate caregivers and adequate resources. Like that's the thing that actually matters, which I really like, and I think there's a, I have a, a ton of thoughts about this, so this might meander a little bit. I hope that your average listener is up for a certain amount of meandering because it's what they're gonna get.
0: Oh, we meander all the time on my show. It's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so one of the things that struck me coming back to this, since I haven't looked at her work in a little while, is that um, she seems to mostly be speaking to an audience of people who buy. Parenting books. Right. Right. So it's mostly relatively affluent, middle class. She talks a lot about people putting too much academic pressure on their children, things like that. Um, and a couple of things stand out to me about that. Um, she mentions one of them. One of them is that a lot of people in that situation are relatively isolated as they're raising their children, especially in the grand scheme of human history, where you're a lot more likely to have you know, friends, relatives, aunts, uncles, other kids running around to kind of distribute some of the social and physical burden of raising a child. Um, people are more mobile now. And it's nice that you're able to be mobile. I mean, a lot of us left our hometowns for a reason. So, you know, there, there isn't a like one true answer about this. But it does mean that a lot of times the caregiving falls to like one parent or the other 90% of the time. And that's very taxing. And I sometimes wonder if a lot of the struggles that we have are, are like really large systemic ones. But those can be really overwhelming and hard to wrap our heads around. So sometimes when that's causing a certain amount of anxiety, we sort of table it and then start focusing on like, find the correct swaddling blanket or some other sort of small thing that we can control. <laughs> and we put all of this responsibility on ourselves. We just can't really trust any larger community or system to step up. In a meaningful way
0: It's interesting because like one of the things that um sticks out to me, like I've been thinking about a lot in the last year or so that I've been doing the show, and and you know, we we dig into conspiracy theories a lot and um like what makes them appeal to people and like what, oh, what, yeah. what is this sort of the selling point. And I think it's very similar to like the selling point of these parenting books, which is that like there is a solution there's a formula that explains everything. And you just have to do this thing. Yeah. And then yeah, the kid's going to come out fine and be a, be a genius. And like, and 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 that's that. And It, it feels like a lot of this industry kind of preys on um, that kind of vulnerability of, of parents.
1: Yeah, I think it does. I, I definitely think it does. But see the other thing that's sort of attention that she doesn't necessarily address as much. And I think it's just because it's a bit beyond the scope of the book more than anything Um So on the one hand, like, you can't control everything about your children's lives and how they're going to turn out. And that's a little terrifying, but it's also kind of a relief because like, oh my God, I can't even control (laughs) my own entire life, much less someone else's. Um, On the other hand, if you have kids without necessarily having a lot of experience with kids, or if you come from a community or family or tradition that is, uh, shall we say, fucked up somehow, like, you know, I don't want to do that, or I don't know what to do because. Philosophy aside, like I still have to know how to keep this child alive and I'm going to have to feed them and clothe them and help them sleep. So like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, there really is a need for a certain amount of advice, but then it gets wrapped up in this like, you know, sort of insane anxiety provoking, overselling rapping a lot of times. And so another bit about my background that I think is relevant here is that I was raised um, Baptist and was homeschooled and my parents used a lot of James Dobson books and stuff. Uh, they tended to be better in practice than they were in theory, but there are definitely things I'm like, yeah, that that wasn't ideal. There are things that I wouldn't replicate. Um, you know, Dr. Gopnik does talk about that. She does say, hey, every generation is going to change and innovate a little bit. That's just kind of how it goes. And that's fine. But then. It leaves me in a weird position, and I think a lot of other people might relate to this, where I did have a general idea how to deal with some of the physical care of small children. I knew enough basics about their needs and development, but the kind of ethical, moral education side, like discipline and what it's appropriate to expect from children was something that I really did need to think more explicitly about. But one of the tricks of that is you need to have some idea of what to do, But you also need to kind of get yourself out of the mold of like, there is one correct answer to create the one true child. And if you do it wrong, they'll be destroyed forever. (laughs) Because I think that happens. People move from this, you know, Christian fundamentalist parenting, but then reenact that same sort of pattern um, in a more, you know, quote unquote, progressive parenting style. They bring that same sort of dogmatism and that same sort of look for control um, to just a different set of practices. And I think that's a pretty common human thing, Um, but it's tricky. I mean, it makes it very, very tricky to navigate. So that's one of the things that's really most interesting to me as someone with a philosophy background is kind of teasing out those fundamental assumptions or values or goals that are implicit in a lot of the information that people are taking in.
0: I think there's a lot of the, (laughs) you call it sort of the, the, the progressive middle class, whatever, um, there's a lot of the the, the sort a sort of secular fundamentalism about this as well. Um, have you ever seen the, the the Freakonomics movie adaptation?
1: Ooh, no, I haven't.
0: Okay, so Freakonomics is a is a is a podcast uh, slash NPR series slash book. Oh,
1: is the logo like a tennis ball that's also in orange, or am I making yeah, that yeah, up? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, I know that <laughs> <Yeah>. logo. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so the movie has this really interesting uh, feature. I think it was by uh, I blank on his name, but the guy who did Supersize Me. Uh, anyway, so it's all about the. Um, the sort of economics of naming, right? And like that if you look at if you look at the naming trends over the course of several years, there's like a period of time when a certain name is like a rich name and a certain name's a poor name and they like switch places and Oh
1: yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Like the the Tollivers and Taliaferos are like Crystal and Kristen or, or whatever. Like Right <laughs> Right.
0: Right. And then like Ashley is like a Rich girl's name in the '80s and like a trashy girl's name in the '90s yeah, and like yeah,
1: exactly. It, it, it's, it's like it's, as soon as right. it becomes accessible to to other people, it is no longer fancy. Yeah, one hundred percent.
0: But the, but the point that he's like making in that is that it there's a there's a there's an economy of names in that like the sort of parents that you're referring to, like the progressive middle class parents, are looking for the name that's going to like make the perfect kid. So it's like, what name do I have to pick that's going to like that's going to help shape the the ideal the ideal child and then hmm. you know you combine that with the like they must go to a museum this many hours a year and like listen mm-hmm. to mozart and that sort of thing and of course the reality of it is that the the sorts of parents who have the um the financial, you know, means to worry about <laughs> what name they're going to yeah. name their kid in terms of like what it's going to mean for their, you know, for their future, and also to bring them to museums and like play classical yeah. music for them are the kinds of parents who are going to like be able to have time to raise a kid, right? And it's yeah. and it's like it's 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 a it's a causal um, uh, uh, correlation uh, fallacy that's going on there, right? Um, But I think it's really interesting because there is this like, it definitely is, there's an external pressure to it too, right? There's, there's, it's not just like these, these progressive middle-class parents are like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to outdo the, the Joneses or whatever. There's, there's an element where like our, our culture places this this responsibility to like design a perfect child and like make sure and if it's not perfect like you didn't build it right right and I think that's where the sort of carpentry uh, analogy that she uses is really useful
1: yeah and I think it shows up in some kind of sneaky and surprising places sometimes as well so my daughter is seven now but when she was a toddler I was reading some of these like positive parenting positive discipline because Again, if you're like, well, I'm not just gonna smack my kid, so I should probably think of like how else to deal with things. And you do need some examples or some models to sort that out. And and I actually think that, um, you know, the gardener and the carpenter leave space for that kind of thing. I don't think it's opposed to that. It's Yeah, 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 yeah. But in any case, I was looking for models like this. And one of the things that's really common on these websites is saying like, well, when your kid is freaking out, try empathy. Like. Mirror what they're saying back to them, give them some words, say, like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I see you're very mad right now and you don't want to go. And I think that's basically a fine thing to do. And I actually do that fairly often. And I think it's basically a good tool to have on hand. Um, And I have seen now that my daughter's older, I think having that vocabulary modeled makes it a little easier for her to express these things herself. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times on blogs or other websites where they're, of course, also marketing parenting coaching sessions and things like that they assure you that empathy is going to work like and they tell all of these anecdotes about like and then they were calm and they said yes mommy that's very reasonable and everything was great and they didn't push back (laughs) on the boundaries anymore because they felt understood and if they're pushing back on the boundaries maybe you haven't been firm enough or you haven't been understanding enough or you haven't been firmly understanding enough. And in any case, you should probably go to the next post and maybe subscribe to like a coaching session. And it's like, you know, that's a good tool to have, but people are still unpredictable. And sometimes it's just hard and it sucks and we have bad days. And I think you need to do more than just give lip service to that. I I do feel like a lot of parenting advice would be a lot more helpful if it were presented as like, These are possibilities that we are laying out before you. These are tools that you could use or not use according to your judgment and your situation. And it's still just going to be really weird and hard sometimes. I don't know. Have fun. Like that, that seems like something that would be a little bit more useful, but uh, that doesn't, it's not great marketing. And that's one of the things that that I'm really interested in and would like to be aware of and keep writing about because that makes a big difference in the types of expectations people put on themselves and on their kids. That sort of subtle emotional marketing language makes a big difference in people's like everyday lives, at least until you're aware of what's going on, then it kind of breaks the spell to a certain extent. But it's yeah, it's wild out there. are there any like what are some of the biggest parenting pressures you feel or what do you say has helped form or shape the decisions you make and how you're dealing with everyday situations with your kids
0: oh my god so i (laughs) it really like it was it was not that long into our first kid where i was like okay the first thing we got to do is make sure that the kid doesn't die yeah (laughs) it really is the most important thing Mm -hmm. and non-parents don't understand how hard it is to like (laughs) get get through a day without (laughs) dying Uh, yeah you know yeah it really is and it's enormous like and i'm not i don't mean that like facetiously it's it is like it is something that you are just constantly worried about Uh, Yeah. Sometimes because they are stupid, you know, in the way that they like run around in the in the street or whatever. And sometimes yeah. just because yeah. it's like there's this thing that is you have to not let a human die for the first time in your life. Right? Like, yeah, this is your job now. And you never had that job before. And right? nobody who
1: isn't apparently really has that job. The um, human that we handed you doesn't really have any neck muscles. So just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes it much more alarming yeah, for a
0: long time I,
1: so that's yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. to me because growing <laughs> up in the country and babysitting and being around homeschoolers, I didn't typically worry about my kids just up and dying. Um, because like, I just saw kids do really dumb things and live all the time. Right. So I was like, they're probably fine. But I do remember being completely shocked. Like, Oh wow. That baby really needs me like again, huh? This is going to keep happening. <laughs> like the, the constancy of need was kind of a shock to the system for me.
0: And I just wish that, like, more this sort of genre focused more on, like, okay, here's how to not make your kid die. And then if you want to take steps after that, right? Like, <laughs> that's the most important thing. Like really focus on not letting the kid die. And then, and then you can be like, and now how do you, you know, now we build the creativity and it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Right. But instead it seems to be this like top down approach where it's like, you're going to start at the goal of making the perfect human. And then it's like, and here's how you work your way down to where you are now so that you can like climb that ladder with that human. And, and, and then you start like, And then it just feels like everything's a failure. And it's like, Mm. parents need to know that if you can get through every day of those like 18 years without the kid dying, like that's, That's you've done a great thing, right? Like that's, it's really good.
1: Well, and I think that brings up a really interesting point too. Like we need to have a little Maslow's Hierarchy board book that says that you have to survive before you can make art or whatever.
0: Right, right.
1: I mean, so that actually gets into the history of parenting advices and industries. Prior to the 20th century, there were always like, you know, there have always been books around where people talked about raising children properly, especially like in the United States in Puritan communities, especially they placed a huge importance on the family and obedience and fulfilling these roles properly and things like that. So like there was writing about this, it wasn't completely new. But around the turn of the 20th century, pediatrics as a sort of official field started to become more established. There's a writer named Anne Holbert who wrote a book called Raising America, who gives a really good summary of the history of this. But they started giving advice to parents because in the early 20th century, germ theory was relatively new. Infant mortality was really high. Sanitation was bad. Eventually, they had a flu pandemic to deal with. And in increasing numbers, at least upper class women were attending college, but they still weren't really in the workforce. So you had this odd mix of like, you know, these women who are very educated and have sort of prized the life of the mind to some extent, but then they're expected to stay home with babies and they're kind of bored. And I think, you know, we saw a lot of that in in and around 2008. Like, I think one of the reasons that the new domesticity and this sort of like glowing prairie fairy version of motherhood really picked up then is because a lot of high achieving women were suddenly at home and they still have that, you know, intellect and they still have that drive and they think like, you know what, I want to do this really well, I'm going to be professional and scientific about this. But at the turn of the century, something similar happened. Pediatricians started releasing their hospital manuals about the care and feeding of babies to mothers and enlisting mothers in particular to gather data for them about children and their development and what they did at different times. So it it kind of opened this idea of a professionalized scientific mothering, which was really appealing um, to upper class educated women. And a lot of that did actually focus on just keeping the baby alive because mortality was really high then. And that's one of the really interesting things too. A lot of the advice from the 20s is like, obsessed with the food that you're giving to babies and is obsessed right. with like, don't touch them too much. And whatever. like, and it's easy to look at that and say, yeah, wow. What a bunch of cold people. What's their problem. But it was because like, there was a pandemic and babies were dying all the
0: time. Five drops of mercury every day.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that actually had to do with <laughs> the material means of survival at the time being different. Um, right. right. So, I mean, one of my favorite things to do with like various parenting philosophies is just to contextualize them because a lot of times there is it's in reaction to something else, whether that's a historical event or some other parenting guru or whatever. And knowing that puts things in, in a somewhat different light. And then, you know, the other thing that um, Goffnick brings up, I was listening to an interview with her and the interviewer was like, OK, but like what what's something like if there were something you could do to make your kid turn out right? Like, I know that's not how it works, but if there were something, what would you do? And Dr. Goffnick was like, well, Focus on climate change.
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. And
1: child poverty. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) that's right. Right. Like systemic issues. Systemic issues are probably a bigger deal because while one mom over here on Instagram is worried about getting the correct pacifier for her kid. Another mom who doesn't have internet because she can't afford it is worrying about how to feed her kid. And that is much more pressing, in my opinion. But also a lot harder for individuals to deal with. So I can see how people kind of end up in their little bubble.
0: Yeah. Make a world they can live in. Yeah. And that and that is also, I think, to me, is like the one of the constant kind of nagging uh anxieties I have about being a parent is that I'm like, I just I don't know. If they're gonna have civilization when they're thirty, you know yeah. what I mean, and and I mean that really seriously. And I'm like, no, I know what. Yeah. What kind of world are they going to have to live through? And like, when am I gonna break that to them? Yeah, I
1: don't know.
0: You know, I, like I remember, I remember a few years ago when when or not maybe like even a year ago. And of course, like Fox News went absolutely apeshit over this because um, AOC was talking about how one of the reasons, like she helped craft the green new deal was she is seriously ethically challenged about whether or not she should have children and of course Mm. fox was like aoc wants us all to stop having children and i'm like no that's not remotely what she said Mm -hmm. um but i i know a lot of younger people now who are really struggling i I struggled with it i have to say like i i I did have the thought of, like, should I bring children into this world? Uh, yeah. And I know a lot of younger parents and, and people who are, like, newly married, who are, like, 10 years younger than I mm. am, um, are, are much more seriously, um, you know, tackling yeah. that that issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's... And it sucks. It does. It really does. And that's that's a real... <laughs> That is a real thing, and I absolutely do not regret having children, but if someone is like, well, see it is how we're going to get launched into the sun, like, I just don't <laughs> know. I, I understand and respect that.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if that, like, p- part of that I often wonder is that is that because we're, you know, <laughs> we're philosophy-minded, and it's the kind of thing that occurs to us, right. um, or is it a thing that normal people think? And, I, and I'm, I'm noticing more and more now that it's it's something that normal people for lack of a better term, seem to seem to think um, and and seem to really be struggling with.
1: I mean, I think a certain amount of like climate worry is relatively mainstream now, at least you're in Connecticut. I'm in Texas. It's not mainstream here, which is bad. (laughs) But I, I do think that one thing that really is affecting everybody is, you know, the pandemic and the economy. And I think that drives a lot of the whole optimize your baby thing among the middle classes, because we know that our hold on this is really tenuous. Like we've seen the job market collapse. Mm -hmm. So you're like, all right, kid, you're going to have to figure out chess if you ever want to afford to buy a chess set, because this is not going to last. And it's like clawing at these last little bits of stability. Like a lot of us don't own houses. You don't know if your kid is going to be able to own a house or not. Like it's, it's really difficult to say, and things are changing rapidly. So, but then the other problem is a lot of that trying to secure a place for your child in the dystopia means throwing the other kids under the bus, more or less, because the way your child is going to survive is by like winning the supposed meritocracy, right. which doesn't exist. But if we tell ourselves it does, that at least gives us something to do. You <laughs> know, <laughs> I mean, that's another thing where I, I think there is just this really like individualist instinct, but that's also kind of part of parenting, right? Like You do care about all children theoretically, but you're more specifically (laughs) connected with these particular children. So that's just one of those tensions, you know, and a lot of people are very, are very isolated. And I mean, one way of helping that a little bit is by making part-time work a little bit more normal, having affordable, high quality childcare available for more people so that like children have more caring adults in their life than only their parents. Um, and parents get to continue engaging in meaningful work um, beyond the meaningful work of just taking care of their kids in a way that can be beneficial to everyone. I mean, it's hard, and I don't really have a good solution for it necessarily, except to be more socialist. But I can't. What's the answer, Robin? Tell me the answer. It's rough. Solve it's the struggle. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> I didn't finish my PhD. You shouldn't trust me. But – hey. Bill Gates is a college dropout, so Did his parents buy him a garage or was it only Jeff Bezos' parents? Or did does everybody's parents buy them a garage before they become like tycoons?
0: <laughs> I don't know about that. Bill Bill Gates grew up Bill Gates' family was 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 normal rich, like not okay. excessive, right. But like endow Great. endowments to people rich, right? Like not oh, okay. gajillionaires. So, so he grew up rich. Yeah. He's just now like ridiculously rich. So Right. Um I think that's pretty telling that he was able to drop out of school and like be even richer than his parents. And that maybe outcomes have more to do with yeah your lottery.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of I mean, that's
0: lottery.
1: One of the things that she mentions and that really just strikes me a lot, especially when I look at like breathless headlines about, you know, studies show that going barefoot in the mud creates a superior child or <laughs> um, like every individual is a collection of, so many variables For sure. and it's really really difficult to make good studies about like what the effect of chess lessons has on a child as a whole person yeah. um, because like you know you've got income you've got their friends you have their general health you have relatives you have their school you have nutrition you have other activities I mean there's just a huge number of things that end up shaping a person so that you know it's a good and fine thing for kids to play chess if that's something they like that's great and when there are parents who support that that's lovely like this is not an anti-chess podcast or something like that (laughs) but it is to say that like we don't really know what playing chess is gonna do for your kid like it's fine it's not gonna hurt them but like eh. if you see a headline promising that it's gonna make your child a happy genius like that's probably not true because we can't really know that and i'm
0: pretty sure like stalin played chess so you know he probably
1: did and look at that asshole yeah He probably even had lessons. I think
0: think a lot of really bad people played chess and some good ones. They
1: really Uh, did. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's really the more important thing. So the other thing that I'm curious about is how much television Bill Gates watched as a child, because there is so much screen time panic. Yeah. And now there's a pandemic. Yeah. I also use the TV or iPad as a babysitter because no other babysitter is forthcoming. (laughs) and the kids learn little letters and it basically seems fine. It does seem fine. Like, hey, it's not ideal but it's fine and this is the circumstance we're in. Yeah. But it makes me wonder right? Like he's Gen X he was probably just letting himself in and watching stupid shit on TV as much as any yeah, other child. He's
0: like he's like he's, older. like he's like boomer slash Gen X but he's, he's, he's somewhere in like the I think he's more of a boomer. More yeah, of a I boomer.
1: But I bet child Bill Gates watched a lot of stupid TV like everybody else. That's my theory.
0: Yeah and I, I know that adult, adult Bill gates To spend a shit ton of time on a screen, like, are you right? kidding me? That's all he does. <laughs> it's like, that's like screen time is
1: okay if it's making you rich or teaching you a language, but if you're <laughs> like it, it's probably bad. I just
0: like anecdotally from my own kids. They like to play with their tablets and stuff, and and but they don't like. It's not the first thing they go to. No, not like, really. They have these urges sometimes, like I want to play with my tablet. I'm like, all right, fine. You haven't done that in a day. That's 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 cool. I played a ton of video games, and I'm whatever I am. like yeah. it's you know, I'm not going to say I'm fine but like but you're here i'm i haven't killed anybody yeah. and I have a job <laughs> you know so yeah exactly so <laughs> it's really like weird.
1: if i were to give any advice which is scary i don't really like giving advice but like the advice i give to myself anyway is that if i see some sort of like study or it's usually not even the studies actually the studies are really like very measured and boring and obviously written by nerds who are like well there seems like there could be some correlation and that's all we know so far but it also might not be like the actual studies are generally much more careful than the articles written about the studies so if a study is like this is the best thing for kids or this is the worst thing for kids it's like okay but the question to ask ourselves is how many like emotionally loaded words are in this article because if there's lots of words that are clearly designed to evoke terror or joy maybe take a deep breath and see whether it's worth actually feeling those things given the content and also like To what end? I mean, (laughs) like the correct sippy cup for child's development. What's going to happen if they use a regular sippy cup? Probably nothing. If they use a regular sippy cup like 10 hours a day, that's not great, but I feel like then the problem isn't really the sippy cup. That's probably some other sort of more fundamental issue you might want to check out, right?
0: You should use the sippy cup that doesn't have lead in it. like that, Yeah, like exactly. You know what I mean? Like That's, like, that's yeah. where that discussion ends. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of like, <laughs> Foster's development is the best for blah, blah, blah. And it's like, is the best for what? Foster's development toward what? What's the alternative <laughs> if you don't use this thing? And I mean, this is where I, I do feel like the philosophy background is useful because you just ask obnoxious questions a lot. And some of them are useful, you know?
0: yeah for sure
1: um oh have you ever noticed like when you see toys for babies they'll say this is like foster's baby sensory and motor development if you go on pinterest there's tons of sensory activities because we know that it is good for babies to touch different textures as part of Mm -hmm. their lives Mm -hmm. and instead of just like thinking to ourselves well the physical world has a lot of different textures and the baby lives in it. So that's probably fine. You think, no, no, no. Like I'm going to do all of these different activities and I'm going to buy these expensive, like sensory stepping stones that each have a slightly different plastic texture. And I'm like, why? You're going to make yourself crazy. Like, and it's not that these things are bad. I absolutely don't think the sensory toys will hurt your child in any way. And if it brings you joy to make them feel free. I'm just saying that like, don't feel like you have to, because your child is gonna find a lot of textures under the couch, mm-hmm. frankly, and probably even eat them. So, like, whatever.
0: Especially when you don't have time to clean under the couch.
1: But but like the toys are always advertised as somehow like optimizing your baby. It's never like this toy is fun and the baby might like it, so you should buy it. <laughs> Which I would love to see, but that is just not that's just doesn't well, make the like, list. <laughs>
0: The baby was it, baby Einstein? Whatever it was, like that whole. There's that whole. Oh yeah!
1: And like,
0: right, and it's like yeah, yeah. that's it's,
1: right. The implication is like,
0: it's going to be a genius because they plays with this particular like three note light up thing that they hold. It's like. I'm going to buy it because they, they like to make noises and see things light up. But like, I am not expecting that my kid is going to like discover, you know, the, the, the God particle, like, um, and like
1: all the DVDs and uh, stuff
0: drives me insane. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah, please do. So you were raised by a manual. Um, sort of so you were raised with like the the james dobson guide to making the perfect little christian child and i was not raised with a manual how do you feel that like having been raised with a manual or with like a a protocol (laughs) right um like what impact do you think it had on your on your on your life uh either like subconsciously or consciously that's
1: a great question um so i think there there are two things to say about that Probably more, but at least two. And the first one I would say is that, like, technically I was raised by a manual, but I don't actually believe that anybody raises children fully by a manual, even if they mean to. Right. Um, in my experience, <laughs> sure, people will try and they will do some of the practices and use some of the scripts. But at the end of the day, like their experience and personality and situation and personal sort of emotional life and formation are going to end up playing a larger role than they might realize sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. I think in my case for better, um, you know, like I, I had tensions with my parents growing up, like any kid does. And I do think that there was maybe more, more emphasis on obedience than I'm probably, you know, using with my own children, because that was more valued, um, in their, in their religion, um, among other things. But You know, in practice, my, my mom in particular tended to be like pretty reasonable and laid back and willing to talk things through. So while there was a big emphasis on obedience when I was very small, by the time I was older, like, I I think we tended to do more talking about things than like being punished. And that might partly just be a function of like the kind of kid that I was, that I just liked to be homeschooled and play the piano and wander around in the field and whatever. But in any case, it wasn't exactly by the manual, but the bits that were by the manual, the sort of like, like the pull that that cast over things created a lot of pressure for my parents and also for me. So if you look back at, you know, Christian homeschool materials and like Christian church materials and stuff from the 90s and 2000s and probably still today, although I haven't looked there's a big emphasis on training up a child in the way they should go, and then they will not depart from it. Like the most important thing that you can do in that way of thinking is to raise a Christian child who has the correct beliefs and the correct lifestyle and way of doing things. Um, and the problem with that is that it's it's very narrow. Like your idea of what's a successful child and a successful parent is very, very narrow. And when your child inevitably doesn't fit exactly, um, it can cause parents to kind of panic and feel like they failed when really they haven't like they've done fine, but they're just very scared (laughs) of the outside world and the contact their child has with it. And it can be scary for the child too, because you know that there are expectations and there's a lot of emotional weight falls on you when you, when you fail to meet them, not even necessarily in the form of punishment, but just knowing that failing to meet those expectations is having such a large negative effect on your parents' emotions and their sense of self and everything is heavy. And I definitely um, wouldn't have put it in those words at the time. So I converted to Catholicism when I was 17, which is a really long story for another time, but it didn't go over well because of the fear. (laughs) Um, And that's part of how I got into philosophy, because I was like, if I just find the correct words, like the right way to formulate what the papacy is all about, they'll see that it's actually not the new world order and it'll be fine. And it did not work that way because it wasn't really about ideas. It was about emotions and changing roles and identity and all the stuff that I just didn't, (laughs) didn't have the context for at that age. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems is that it just creates a, a lot of unnecessary pressure where we, if we have a little more, Broad, generous, flexible idea of what it is to be a good and flourishing person that that gives everybody a little more breathing room, I think, and allows people to be a little more genuine with each other because you don't have to worry so much that like any sort of small change or difference or deviation or bit of weirdness about yourself is going to have this this big emotional fallout. One other thing from the gardener and the carpenter that really, really struck me on this rereading that I think is relevant to my parents being better in practice than in theory is that children are really really sensitive to the values and norms and customs of their community and some of what dr gopnik found in her earlier work on developmental psychology is that children tend to pick those things up more or less automatically even if they're not you know explicitly stated in words they pick up really quickly what's important to their caregivers and you know, one of the things that my husband always says about this topic is like, you know, most of being a good parent beyond the sort of basics of keeping them alive is just being a good person. It's like embodying <laughs> the values. How do I that do no, no, that? manual. On. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. That's the thing. Like, it's very simple and very complicated and very easy and very difficult all at the same time. But like... Right. Like honest to god, quit reading about pacifiers and go to therapy. Like if there's a practical thing to do, that's probably it. Uh, work on yourself, and it'll it'll kind of pass on to them. I think.
0: You know, it's also like one of those things that I, I think. Like, what really annoys me about it, not even just so much the absurdity of you know the proper sippy cup or whatever. It's it's yeah. it really is that element of of like, no man, like we gotta fix. The, the people who are raising the children and the circumstances that we force them into. Yeah, that's
1: absolutely right.
0: None of this would matter. Like none of this would be relevant if, 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 if we didn't have such economic disparity yeah. and such racial, race, you know, racial, disparity in right. this country and like valued things like being a parent as though it's a job, which yeah, it is, right. you just don't get paid for it. And that's weird. And like, why do we yep. do that? You know, and it's, there, there's just so much, it, it's, We're great as a culture at, like, writing books about how we should take responsibility for something that's a societal responsibility. And, like, it's a really weird thing that we do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) Well, that's one of the overlaps with wellness culture as well. So, like, um, I brought up, like, the new domesticity. Like, all of these highly educated, career-minded folks, like, focusing on hobby farms and kids and cooking from scratch and stuff like that, like Michael Pollan and pals, you know, Emily Matchart wrote a really great book about that called Homeward Bound. And that was basically what she found. It was just that, like, there's just this really intense um, individualism involved in all of that, because that's what people feel like they're able to control and they're not you know, naturally in community with others if you've moved a lot for jobs and things like that. So that's kind of where it ends up. And I think that's also part of why you end up like finding super like hippie type people and Nazis at the farmer's market. I don't really think it's a horseshoe theory (laughs) thing. No, I'm serious, though. Like, I don't actually think it's horseshoe. I don't think it's that they're so so left that they're right or so right that they're left. I think the thing that actually unites... Both of those groups are two things. It's this like really intense sort of bunker mentality individualism. Like I have to be completely responsible for my health and my food and my education and my children's education and literally everything else, because I don't trust any outside system at all. Um, And a sort of obsession with purity, which is its own whole thing to unpack. But I mean, basically who they blame for all of these problems, or what sort of system they think would would be a better replacement, differs a bit. But I mean, that's really the fundamental unifying element among the the disparate farmers market extremists. I think you so right.
0: Um,
1: it's crazy, right? Like it's super yeah. fucked up. When I realized that, I just like thought about it for weeks because I was like, ah, oh, they're the same.
0: <laughs> yeah. They really are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yes. They definitely are the same. I mean, one wants to annihilate entire like ethnic groups and the other is like wants to like smell more like literal dirt when they go out. But Yeah, you know, I mean so that's the thing. I, I do
1: want to be like a- absolutely clear. They're not morally the same. Right. <laughs> like fuck a bunch of Nazis. No, we don't have anything to do with them. If I had a farmer's market, they wouldn't be allowed but like the reason they're at the farmer's market is kind of the same like the rest of it is different right. but the reason they're all at the farmer's market is similar
0: and it's like this 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 like trained uh anti-establishment uh mentality right Where, yeah. like the wellness culture is like nothing the doctors can't be trusted and like society can't be trusted and only you know you yeah. gotta take responsibility for it and that's why you do yoga and then you know the nazis are like yeah except without the yoga and like with killing minorities but you know it's it's, we're gonna do
1: crossfit (laughs) because of masculinity or whatever but yeah it's oh my god fucking crossfit man yeah well but that's like also i I finally started seeing articles coming out about like how all of these like holistic instagram moms are getting really into QAnon. yeah yeah
0: it's bad it's real yeah and one of the
1: big food bloggers from the whole like raw milk whatever movement back in the uh you know late aughts her blog was cheese slave and she started this whole network of like green living blogs and stuff like that. And now her blog is just a QAnon blog and it's like way QAnon. Like Joe Biden is not real QAnon. Uh, I was like, well called that. But I mean, I think it is, it's the, dis- it's the anti-establishment thing. Um, And I've written about this a little bit elsewhere too, but I mean, if you think about it, you think, okay, vaccines are evil. Doctors can't be trusted obstetricians can't be trusted the fda can't be trusted public schools can't be trusted uh everyone is literally trying to ruin us all for money right um and i'm completely on my own and i also need to homeschool my child and i should probably unschool because literally nothing is to be trusted except me and the lady on the internet who told me not to trust anybody Mm -hmm. and it just takes you to some really weird places and um it also feels good because it feels like critical thinking and gaining secret knowledge and you kind of feel good about having access to something that you see other people not having access to. Yes. And calling them sheep and stuff like no, I'm special because I know that Joe Biden isn't real. And there's a sort of ascetic treadmill too like cuz bloggers and others make marketing. So if they just said, "Yeah, you probably shouldn't eat GMOs." or whatever and that's it then well you can only blog about that for so long so you kind of start like adding other things (laughs) to the shit list like there's a lady named katie bowman or katie bowman i'm not sure how she pronounces it but she writes about like ergonomics and physical alignment and exercise and stuff like that about how to like fix your posture and how that might help when you're giving birth and things like that and i mean it started out like fine i don't that's not really my field so I can't give any expert commentary but it was fine but then it was like well sitting is bad and also chairs are bad and maybe furniture is bad so she didn't have furniture and mattresses are bad and pillows are bad and strollers are definitely bad but you know what baby carriers are also bad because you should just use your arms and shoes are like it the list just goes on it gets crazy but like it keeps the content going and it gets people's attention um and and lets them kind of have that hit of like ooh like i'm gonna be i'm gonna be like more enlightened than the rest and i'm gonna be better and fitter and happier and all the other things radio had talked about because i don't have a pillow and that's something i can control easily um so it just keeps going and then the result is that you get down these bizarre rabbit holes where QAnon has a chance to thrive because you're already in an echo chamber you're already highly suspicious of people you're already very focused on children and very anxious about children um, so, you know, I didn't necessarily predict that QAnon was going to pick up in the sort of wellness, holistic, natural mommy space, but I wasn't surprised by it when it started popping up. QAnon
0: make, makes its way into like every single episode of the show and it's <laughs> sometimes on purpose and sometimes. Oh,
1: fucking and hell. And that's got to get sometimes.
0: old. It, it, it does. It's just it's around. Really, it's, it's just really really around. Important. It, yeah, like, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and people is. don't
0: understand all the different avenues. But
1: yeah, but it, like it's conspiracy's greatest hits. It's like every conspiracy theory glommed into one. So I'm like, yeah, that sure that would do it. Yeah, hmm. going
0: way, 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 way back. Uh, this has been really fun. <laughs> it was. Are you gonna write another post at some point soon?
1: Yeah, I will. I kind of went on a painting bender this week and didn't write anything.
0: I noticed that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have a half-faked essay that is gonna go up hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, so what it does, I'll send you a link. Robin, it's been great talking to you. Great talking to you. Thank you for your patience with the technical stuff, and I will be in touch with you later.